Part 2, Chapter 2 of The Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Orty. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Part 2, Chapter 2. I was greatly surprised to receive, a few days later, an invitation from Baron Wilderling. He asked me to go with him on one of the first evenings in March to a performance of Lemontov's Masquerade at the Alexandra Theatre. I say Lemontov, but heaven knows that that great Russian poet was not supposed to be going to have much to say in the affair. This performance had been in preparation for at least ten years, and when such delights as Gordon Craig's setting of Hamlet or Benoit's dresses for La Locandiera were discussed, the wise one said, Ah, all very well. Just wait until you see Masquerade. These manifestations of the artistic spirit had not been very numerous of late in Petrograd. At the beginning of the war there had been many cabarets, the cow, the calf, the dog, the striped cat, and these had been underground cellars lighted by Chinese lanterns and the halls decorated with futurist paintings by Yakoliev or some other still more advanced spirit. It seemed strange to me as I dressed that evening. I do not know how long it was since I had put on a dinner jacket. With the exception of that one other visit to Baron Wilderling, this seemed to be my one link with the old world, and it was curious to feel its fascination, its air of comfort and order and cleanliness, its courtesy and discipline. I think I'll leave these rooms, I thought, as I looked about me, and take a decent flat somewhere. It is a strange fact, behind which there lies, I believe, some odd sort of moral significance, that I cannot now recall the events of that evening in any kind of clear detail. I remember that it was bitterly cold, with the sky that was flooded with stars. The snow had a queer metallic sheen upon it, as though it were coloured ice, and I can see now the Nevsky like a slab of some fiercely painted metal, rising out of the very smack of our horses' hooves as my sleigh sped along, as though, silkworm-like, I spun it out of the entrails of the sledge. It was all light and fire and colour that night, with towers of gold and frosted green, and even the black crowds that thronged the Nevsky pavements shot with colour. Somewhere, in one of Shorthouse's stories, in the little schoolmaster Mark, I think, he gives a curious impression of a whirling, fantastic crowd of revellers who evoke by their movements some evil pattern in the air around them. And the boy who is standing in their midst sees this dark, twisted, sinister picture forming against the gorgeous walls and the coloured figures until it blots out the whole scene and plunges him into darkness. I will not pretend that on this evening I discerned anything sinister or ominous in the gay scene that the Alexander Theatre offered me, but I was nevertheless weighed down by some quite unaccountable depression that would not let me alone. For this I can see now that Lawrence was very largely responsible. When I met him and the Wilderlings in the foyer of the theatre, I saw at once that he was greatly changed. The clear, open expression of his eyes was gone. His mind was far away from his company, and it was as though I could see into his brain and watch the repetition of the old argument occurring again and again and again, 
with always the same questions and answers, the same reproaches, the same defiances, the same obstinacies. He was caught by what was perhaps the first crisis of his life. He had never been a man for much contact with his fellow beings. He had been aloof and reserved, generous in his judgment of others, severe and narrow in his judgment of himself. Above all, he had been proud of his strength. Now he was threatened by something stronger than himself. He could have managed it, so long as he was aware only of his love for Vera. Now, when, since Nina's party, he knew that also Vera loved him, he had to meet the tussle of his life. That, at any rate, is the kind of figure that I give to his mood that evening. He has told me much of what happened to him afterwards, but nothing of that particular night except once. Do you remember that masquerade evening? I was in hell that night, which, for Lawrence, was expressive enough. Both the Baron and his wife were in great spirits. The Baron was more than ever the evocation of the genius of elegance and order. He seemed carved out of some coloured ivory, behind whose white perfection burned a shining resolute flame. His clothes were so perfect that they would have expressed the whole of him, even though his body had not been there. He was happy. His eyes danced appreciatively. He waved his white gloves at the scene as though blessing it. Of course, Mr. Dilbert, he said to me, this is nothing compared with what we could do before the war. Nevertheless, here you see, for a moment, a fragment of the old Petersburg. Petersburg as it shall be, please God, again one day. I do not in the least remember who was present that evening, but it was, I believe, a very distinguished company. The lights blazed, the jewels flashed, and the chatter was tremendous. The horseshoe-shaped seats behind the stalls, clustered in knots and bunches of colour under the great glitter of electricity about the royal box. Artists, Somov and Benoit and Dobojinsky, novelists like Sologub and Miakowski, dancers like Karsavina, actors from all over Petrograd. They were there, I expect, to add criticism and argument to the adulation of friends and of the carelessly observant rich Jews and merchants who had come simply to display their jewellery. Petrograd, like every other city in the world, is artistic only by the persistence of its minority. I'm sure that there were princesses and grand dukes and grand duchesses for anyone who needed them, and it was only in the gallery where the students and their girlfriends were gathered that the name of Lemontov was mentioned. The name of the evening was Meyerhold, the gentleman responsible for the production. At last the event that had been brewing ceaselessly for the last ten years, ever since the last revolution, in fact, was to reach creation. The moment of Monsieur Meyerhold's life had arrived. The moment, had we known it, of many other lives also. But we did not know it. We buzzed and we hummed, we gasped and we gaped, we yawned and we applauded, and the rustle of gold tissue, the scent of gold leaf, the thick, sticky substance of gold paint filled the air, flooded the arena, washed past us into the street outside. Meanwhile, Monsieur Meyerhold, white, perspiring in his shirt-sleeves, with his collar loosened and his hair damp, is in labour behind the gold tissue to produce the child of his life. And behold, the child is produced. And such a child! 
It was not, I am sure, so fantastic an affair in reality as in my remembrance of it. I have, since then, read Lermontov's play, and I must confess that it does not seem, in cold truth, to be one of his finest works. It is long and old-fashioned, melodramatic and clumsy, but then it was not on this occasion Lermontov's play that was the thing. But it was a masquerade, and that, in a sense, far from the author's intention. As I watched, I remember that I forgot the bad acting. The hero was quite atrocious. Forgot the lapse of taste in the colour and arrangement of the play. Forgot the artifices and elaborate originalities and false sincerities. There were, I have no doubt, many things in it, all that were bad and meretricious. I was dreaming. I saw against my will and outside my own agency, mingled with the gold screens, the purple curtains, the fantasies and extravagances of the costumes, the sudden flashes of unexpected colour through light or dress or backcloth, pictures from those Galician days that had been, until Semyonov's return, as I fancied, forgotten. A crowd of revellers ran down the stage, and a shimmering cloud of gold, shot with red and purple, was flung from one end of the hall to the other, and behind it, through it, between it, I saw the chill light of the early morning, and Nikitin and I, sitting on the bench outside the stinking butt that we had used as an operating theatre, watching the first rays of the sun warm the cold mountain's rim. I could hear voices, and the murmurs of the sleeping men, and the groans of the wounded. The scene closed. There was space and light, and a gorgeous figure, stiff with the splendour of his robes, talked in a dark garden with his lady. Their voices murmured, a lute was played, someone sang, and through the thread of it all I saw that moment when, packed together on our cart, we hung for an instant on the top of the hill and looked back to a country that had suddenly crackled into flame. There was that terrific crash, as of the smashing of a world of China, the fierce crackle of the machine-guns, and then the boom of the cannon from under our very feet. The garden was filled with revellers. Laughing, dancing, singing. The air was filled again with the air of gold paint. The tenor's voice rose higher and higher. The gold screens closed. The act was ended. It was as though I had received in some dim, bewildered fashion a warning. When the lights went up, it was some moments before I realised that the Baron was speaking to me, that the babble of chatter, like a sudden rainstorm on a glass roof, had burst on every side of us, and that a huge Jewess, all bare-back and sham pearls, was trying to pass me on her way to the corridor. The Baron talked away. Very amusing, don't you think? After Reinhardt, of course, although they say now that Reinhardt got all his ideas from your man Craig. I'm sure I don't know whether that's so. I hope you're more reassured tonight, Mr. Durwood. You were full of alarms the other evening. Look around you and you'll see the true Russia. I can't believe this to be the true Russia, I said. Petrograd is not the true Russia. I don't believe there is a true Russia. Well, well there you are, he continued eagerly. No true Russia, quite so, very observant. But we have to pretend there is. And that's what you foreigners are always forgetting. The Russian is an individualist. Give him freedom and he'll lose all sense of his companions. He will pursue his own idea. 
Myself and my party are here to prevent him from pursuing his own idea, for the good of himself and his country. He may be discontented, he may grumble, but he doesn't realize his luck. Give him freedom, and in six months you'll see Russia back in the Middle Ages. And another six months, I asked. The Stone Age. And then? Ah, he said, smiling. You ask me too much, Mr. Durwood. We are speaking of our own generation. The curtain was up again, and I was back in my other world. I cannot tell you anything of the rest of the play. I remember nothing. Only I know that I was actually living over again those awful days in the forest. The heat, the flies, the smells, the glassy sheen of the trees, the perpetual rumble of the guns, the desolate whine of the shells, and then Marie's death, Trenchard's sorrow, Trenchard's death, that last view of Semyonov, and I felt that I was being made to remember it all for a purpose, as though my old friend... Rich now, with his wiser knowledge, was whispering to me, All life is bound up. You cannot leave anything behind you. The past, the present, the future are one. You had pushed us away from you, but we are with you always, forever. I am your friend forever, and Marie is your friend. And now, once more, you have to take your part in a battle, and we have come to you to share it with you. Do not be confused by history or public events or class struggle or any big names. It is the individual and the soul of the individual alone that matters. I and Marie and Vera and Nina and Markovitch, our love for you, your love for us, our courage, our self-sacrifice, our weakness, our defeat, our progress, these are the things for which life exists. It exists as a training ground for the immortal soul. With a sweep of colour, the stage broke into a mist of movement. Masked and hooded figures in purple and gold and blue and red danced madly off into the forest of stinking, sodden leaves and trees as thin as tissue paper burnt by the sun. Oh, I, oh, I, oh, I, came from the wounded, and the dancers answered, Tra-la-la-la, tra-la-la-la. The golden screens were drawn forward, the lights were up again, and the whole theatre was stirring like a coloured paper ant-heap. Outside, in the foyer, I found Lawrence at my elbow. "'Go and see her,' he whispered to me, "'as soon as possible. Tell her, tell her. "'No, tell her nothing, but see that she's all right and let me know. "'See her tomorrow, early.' "'I could say nothing to him, for the Baron had joined us. "'Good night, good night. A most delightful evening.' "'Most amusing. No, thank you. I shall walk.' "'Come and see us,' said the baroness, smiling. "'Very soon,' I answered. "'I little knew that I should never see either of them again.'" End of chapter 2